Uh, let me just pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've spoken, uh, that we can uh, know you and uh, your plans. Uh, help us come to grips with your willingness and power to save people as we look at your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family where one of the favourite mottos was, if you want something done properly, you've got to do it yourself. But this was taken to such an extent that if, if, if someone was in trouble or in difficulty, it was their own fault. So some members of my family would look at the famines and problems of overseas countries and say, basically, it's their fault. And there's, uh, but so I had trouble coming to grips with the fact that actually there are situations where we need the help of others. <laughs> there are situations we can get in where we are helpless, that we cannot deal with the problem ourselves, and we need the assistance of others. In some sense, we need rescuing, we need saving. And the exodus of Israel from Egypt is the ultimate saving event in the Old Testament. It's, it's an example of where helpless people who were not in a position to save or rescue themselves were rescued, were helped. It shows in many ways that God is able to save his people and that he's willing to save his people. But it also points to a far greater salvation that addresses an ultimate slavery, an ultimate helplessness, that we are indeed slaves to our own wrongdoing and wickedness and death, things from which we cannot possibly rescue ourselves and the first thing we need to do before looking at this text is briefly remind ourselves of some key ideas in Genesis the previous book of course the big idea is that God created the whole world and made human beings as image bearers to relate to him to live under his rule to govern the world on his behalf. Being part of, uh, part of being images, image bearers is that we would live in families, populate the earth and manage it, bring it under dominion or control. Or to use the language of Genesis, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Creation has a definite purpose and direction. God has a goal for creation. But of course this was all cast into ruin and doubt with the rejection of God's rule and humanity seeking to establish self-rule. The temptation given to our first parents, you can be like God, you will not surely die, it rings throughout the centuries. You can rule yourselves. You can manage this world. 
and reject God and his rule. Reject your dependence on God. You can do it yourself. And we live now in that world. This is the world we wanted. But God did not abandon his plan and established Abraham as the man through whom he would continue this purpose. He would continue his purposes for humanity to establish them as rulers under his rule. God promised him many descendants in the promised land and that they would be people who experienced God's favour and be the means by which God would ultimately express favour or blessing to all the nations. So Eden, the Garden of Eden, as a place where God and man would live together and from which man would rule the earth, this has been rejected. But a place where God and man live together is being re-established in Canaan. And what we see in Genesis chapters 12 to 50 is the working out of God's promises to Abraham and his incredibly dysfunctional family. Towards the end of Genesis, as the descendants of Abraham, in their uh, dysfunction, sold one of their brothers, Joseph, to slave traders going to Egypt. And as it turns out, Joseph saves Egypt from the ruin of famine and his family go there to live with him. So in Exodus 1, we pick up the ongoing saga. And there's a brief reminder of this if you look again at the first five verses there. So 70 of Abraham's descendants are living in Egypt. And the question we're being invited to consider here is how well are the promises to Abraham going? Well, they're not in the land promised to Abraham. They're in Egypt. Seventy people is hardly a great nation that's going to dominate and rule the earth. And there's a sense in which Abraham's descendants have been a blessing to the world. Joseph was the means by which God saved many people from starvation. But this is still, still fairly limited in terms of restoring uh, the world or creation. So we're not there yet, are we? God's promises to Abraham are still in their infancy. But verses 6 to 7 recognise this and describe the next few generations and how over time Israel did become a great nation. And it's particularly important to hear to see the language that is being used to describe this. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Israel, in verse 7, were being fruitful, multiplying and filling the earth. God was bringing about his intention for creation through Israel, Abraham's descendants. 
But there's still a massive problem. They are in Egypt, not Canaan. And this problem gets worse in the next chapter or so, and verses 8 to 10 show us why. See, a new king of Egypt comes to power who didn't know Joseph and his family, who didn't know what these people had done for the country of Egypt. And what we need to see here specifically in verse 10 is that Pharaoh wants to stop Israel multiplying. Now, obviously, this is putting himself, isn't it, in direct conflict with God. See, God's plan is Israel should multiply and fill the earth. (coughs) Pharaoh's plan is, how do I stop these people multiplying? And Pharaoh then tried three plans to stop Israel multiplying. First plan, verses 8 to 14, make them work hard. Make their hours long, their labour difficult. And presumably that would make them too tired to multiply. (laughs) Or whatever rationale was behind that. But it didn't work in these verses. They continued to multiply, but not just multiply, they multiplied in a way that caused Egypt to dread them. See, Egypt's problem then was we've got this nation of slaves, but how do we control them? There's too many of them. And what's important to see here in verse 14 is that Pharaoh made their lives bitter with the hard service of building for him. Again, this is language taken from creation, from Genesis. The word for service here is often used in a religious way of serving God. In Genesis, God made man to serve him by serving the creation. Instead, God's people are in the harsh service of another king. See, Pharaoh is doing what many of his ancestors have done, and we see examples of it in the world today, don't we, with Kim Jong-un and other nutters in the world who think they can just manage countries in such a way as to destroy people's lives, as to exploit people as slaves for their own benefit. And pharaohs were such people. See, Pharaoh is doing what many of his ancestors have done, which is to assert self-rule against God's rule. He's just... But he's not just enslaving people as bad as this is... He's in direct conflict with God's purpose by seeking to stop Israel multiplying or growing or developing into this nation through whom God will re-establish his rule in the world. So his first plan to stop Israel multiplying failed. His second plan, verses 15 to 21 
He got the midwives, or told the midwives, kill the boys straight after they're born. Again, this is the world we want. This is the world we now live in. Because we believe the lie, you can be like God, you won't surely die. And this is happening now throughout the world in various ways. Unfortunately, this is not unique. But this plan also failed, verse 17, because the midwives feared God and didn't obey Pharaoh. I don't know whether you've thought about this, but this is gutsy. See, Pharaoh was an incredibly powerful person. He could, have, he could have had them killed instantly. But they feared God and didn't obey Pharaoh. And what we also need to note in the text here is that these midwives are acknowledged by name. And this is a big deal because none of the Pharaohs are which historically speaking is frustrating. But there's a reason for it. See, even, if in, our, even in our culture, which is uh, quite a bit different to Middle Eastern culture, if we don't bother remembering someone's name, we know what that means, don't we? It means, well, they're not important to us. We, we don't think that much of that person. I don't really care that much who they are. But even more so in this culture. This is basically saying, who is Pharaoh and who cares? He's just yet another person in this world who thinks himself overly important and asserts himself against God but Shifra and Pua, mentioned by name in the Holy Scriptures, feared God. Their names are eternally written for everyone to see. And their answer is great politics, isn't it? They're asked, why aren't you killing the baby boys? In fact, in a way, it's an offensive answer. They're basically saying, well, these women are better than Egyptian women. As they say, it's always the winners that write history. But what's really important about their answer is that the description of Hebrew women as vigorous or lively is actually the same word as Eve. So you'll remember back in Genesis 3, Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all the living, the lively, the vigorous. Basically, this is saying Hebrew women are Eve-like and have an Eve-like function and capacity. Their capacity to give birth well reflects God's intention to fulfil his purposes for creation through Abraham's descendants. 
So Pharaoh's next plan to stop Israel multiplying, since those two have failed, is that all Egyptians now were to get on board and to throw any baby Hebrew boy into the Nile River and drown them. See, the Nile in Egyptian belief had religious connotations. Not only is Pharaoh himself opposing God, but he's saying that the Egyptian gods are superior to the God of the Hebrews. See, no one can defeat Egypt in Pharaoh's mind because their gods are greater, their technology is greater. Their army's greater. They're just greater people. So who can defeat us? And the Nile is part of that belief. So it's almost like they were sacrificing the Hebrew children to their gods. And what we see, though, in chapter 2 is not only the failure of Pharaoh's third plan but the birth of Israel's saviour, Moses. And again, this goes back to Genesis. In verse 2, Moses' mother, this literally says, she saw that he was good. What did God say when he created the world? He saw that it was good. See, Pharaoh would destroy creation would oppress people, would exploit people for his own benefit and act act against God's intention for it. But Moses' mother will cooperate with God's purposes by preserving Moses because she saw that he was good. And in verse 3, the word for basket is actually the word ark, or literally box, as in Noah's ark. In an ark, God preserved Noah so that his intentions for creation could be preserved, so that he could re-establish a humanity on the earth having purged some of the wickedness. And of course, what is ironic about this situation is that it's Pharaoh's own daughter who causes this plan to ultimately fail by taking pity on baby Moses crying out. And there's a mockery of Pharaoh here. Israel were crying out under their harsh and bitter slavery And he did nothing. So what does God do? He causes Pharaoh's own daughter to respond to the crying out of baby Moses through whom God will save Israel. And not only that, but Moses' mother ends up getting paid to feed and look after her own child the ancient Centrelink. (laughs) See, no doubt at this stage, 
Pharaoh believes he is in complete control of this. But he's on the ropes. This is just a preview of the fact that Israel will not only leave Egypt, but plunder them as well by taking some of their gold and silver. See, in the end, it won't ultimately be Israel's sons who are drowned, but Egypt's. As they defy God's purposes and control over creation. So you can't pick a fight with the true and living God and really genuinely expect to win. Pharaoh, the most powerful man of his time, even considered a god, has picked a fight with the true and living God and the stage is already being set for him to lose decisively. But what we need to notice about the man through whom he will do it is at this point, He's just an indecisive and frail person. This victory will belong to God alone. So when we look at verses 11 to 22, what we see is some tension as to whether Moses will be this saviour that his special birth might cause us to expect. There is some doubt in these verses as to whether he belongs to God and his purposes or not. So verses 11 and 12, he kills an Egyptian oppressor because, you know, you could imagine it, couldn't you? This guy there with a whip getting stuck into a Hebrew very harshly and unjustly. Moses gets angry, looks around, kills the Egyptian. So in a sense, that's a good start because this in the end will be God's plan. But then in verse 14, his own people reject him. Also verse 14, he is afraid of Pharaoh. This doesn't sound like a saviour, does it? Even the midwives feared God rather than Pharaoh. But not Moses, he runs away to Midian. Things are looking up again, verse 17. He's described as literally a saviour. It's only a small thing, but nevertheless he saves or delivers seven women from some shepherds. But then they identify him not as a Hebrew, but as an Egyptian. They say an Egyptian delivered us. And verse 22, he names his son Sojourner, traveller. Moses himself isn't sure where he belongs. 
So what we notice then when we come to verses 23 to 25 is suddenly the many uses of the word God. In, in a, real, in a uh, quite literal translation, this will stand out to you because it's unusual in English. See, to this point in the, in the narrative, God's saving actions have not been evident. In fact, the word God has been used very few times and never in an active sense. He seems very much in the background of all that's going on. And this is probably deliberate in that it reflects the fact that after 400 years of being in Egypt, people are probably asking the question, where is this God of Abraham? Look at our situation. We're in the harsh and bitter service of Pharaoh. Where's the promised land? Where's this kingdom of God? But let me read these verses again. It says, Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. See, suddenly God's going to become very active. See, it's not that God has forgotten his promises to Abraham, but the time has come for God to bring them much closer to fulfilment. It's like the point in an action movie where the hero's downtrodden and oppressed and he says this ends now or something to that effect that's when the action heats up and that's the idea here in the narrative God is about to act in a decisive way and this will happen in such a way that God's greatness power and wisdom will be revealed See, no doubt God could have done it differently to this. But in doing it this way, he will reveal himself to the world with clarity. He will make himself known. To use a sporting illustration, it's half-time. And on the scoreboard, Pharaoh's team look like they are in control. And cruising to victory. But in verses 23 to 25, God himself is about to exert his unlimited power in a decisive way. Egypt are about to be rained down upon and it will end up being an embarrassment. The very forces of nature will be governed to give Israel victory. And it goes on to say there in those verses, doesn't it, another king of Egypt has died and God is about to demonstrate who in fact is the real king. 
Pharaoh and the other gods of Egypt, all supposedly in control of the weather and the land, will be exposed as fakes and humiliated for arrogantly asserting themselves against the one who has purposes for creation and complete control over it. As we think about these themes and how they develop throughout the Bible, what we see is that Egypt is not put in this situation here because they are unusual in their desire to assert themselves against God and claim self-rule and enslave other people, but because they are typical of humanity, because they are typical of such a response to God. This world is characterised by such things. There's something like 54 active conflicts going on in the world right now as we speak. Back in Genesis, God gave humanity the role of ruling creation. But to seek to do that independently of God and in such a way as to conflict with God's purposes will only ever end up going horribly wrong. And we can already see in these initial chapters that Egypt are in deep trouble for seeking to stop God achieving his purposes for creation at this point through Israel. All of Pharaoh's plans have failed to take ultimate effect. And of course, this all plays out with many similarities 1,500 years later, doesn't it? Another Hebrew baby boy is born and the authorities want to kill him. This man will be much greater than Moses and eventually he will die. And once again, the rulers of the time think their plans are secure. But in killing Jesus... They end up demonstrating the power of God because this was God's plan and he raises him from the dead. His kingdom will re-establish creation and humanity's place in it. He will save his people and crush those who persist in rebelling against God's purposes for creation through his people. Another great lesson for us here is that we need to keep perspective. Think about the different perspectives represented in this narrative. From the narrator's perspective, who shares God's perspective, this battle was over before it started. There is no way for Egypt or Pharaoh to win this. But of course, from Egypt's perspective, there is no possible way they can lose. Look at our technology, our army, the sheer volume of people that we have. 
But from Israel's perspective, they are helpless and cannot see even a truly living and great God could rescue them. They have no hope. They thought, like many of us, that if we suffer, even temporarily, then God has failed or is too weak or has lost control for a while. But of course, this is not, not true, is it? It's because God will bring glory to himself by the way his people respond and trust in him no matter what happens. And even when his people are unfaithful, he can still bring glory to himself. See, most Australians, we would not consider ourselves to be in slavery. In fact, we live in one of the great peaceful countries of our time. But the New Testament wants to make it very clear that we are slaves to sin and death. We are enslaved by our unwillingness and inability to do what's right. We are slaves to putting our own glory above God's. And we are slaves to death. Before these things, we stand helpless. We cannot rescue ourselves from these things. In the New Testament, the salvation Jesus won for us is often compared with the Exodus. Our enslavement only, uh, our freedom from enslavement only comes by the actions of God on our behalf. The question of Exodus is the same question facing us. God has acted to save us. He's proved himself to be powerful and willing to save people. The question is, how will people respond to this? What perspective will they adopt? See, all through the Bible, the question is never... Will God come through? That's never the question. The question is, will people believe him? God has acted in the past and on that basis will act again. But will there be faith on earth when he does? See, Israel could see that they were enslaved. Because it was obvious that the king of Egypt took away their political freedom. But if we've failed to see our own slavery, then we will fail to cry out to God to be saved. We will be like many members of my family who think, I can get myself out of any situation I want to. Blessed is the person who cries out under their burden of sin and death to the Lord Jesus Christ because that person will be comforted and satisfied. 
Let me uh, pray for us. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the exodus, for your great and powerful actions in rescuing your people in their helplessness and even in their fickle unbelief. Father, we acknowledge ourselves to be like this, to be people that wallow in sin, who claim that we can live in this world independently of you without consequence. And yet, as people who trust you, we acknowledge that in this we were slaves, that we are unable to do by nature what's right and we stand helpless before the grave. Uh, We acknowledge your greater salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, reaffirm our belief and trust in him as the only one who can save us from our helplessness. Uh, Continue to give us grace to see your uh, power and your willingness to rescue people and to uh, make them your sons and daughters through your ultimate son. Continue to be those that uh, believe in you. Uh, We pray and ask these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.